0: Hearing dark stories in a podcast is one thing, but living in darkness is quite another. If you're living with depression and trying to deal with it using alcohol, illegal drugs, or other bad influences, please pick up the phone right now and get help. 800-831-1560 every 12 minutes someone dies of an overdose every six minutes from alcohol abuse call 800-831-1560 with the fmla you can even take a leave of absence from your job and still keep it 800-831-1560 stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only parental discretion is strongly advised In modern times, the devil's advocate is one of the most popular English idioms. You may have heard or even occasionally used this familiar expression, but did you know the phrase can be traced to the Roman Catholic Church that has long had an office for a person who was employed as the devil's advocate? The devil's advocate is an ancient phrase that has a long history. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Before I get too far into this episode, I wanted to remind you of a giveaway that I'll be doing at the end of this week. My friends over at The Lineup sent me a complimentary Creepy Crate which is full of some really cool stuff and I made an unboxing video that I've posted to YouTube if you want to see it. Well, I've decided I'm going to go ahead and give that box away to one of you, my weirdos. So what you do is you go to Twitter and check out the video and then retweet that post to be registered to win. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And I'd like for you to join me for my upcoming 12 Nightmares of Christmas. I'll be telling terrifying true stories from the book The Spirits of Christmas – The Dark Side of the Holidays from author Sylvia Schultz. Come back every day from December 13th through the 24th for another creepy Christmas episode. And please, spread the Yuletide spirit by sharing the episodes with your friends and family. After all, it's better to give than to receive. Have yourself a scary little Christmas with Weird Darkness coming up in this episode. In an effort to test one of his theories on social behavior, psychologist Muzaffar Sharif released 22 12-year-old boys into a sparsely supervised wilderness camp and then covertly provoked them to fight each other. It's the inspiration for the book The Lord of the Flies. Witch hunts and trials. They didn't end in Salem, They live on even today in New Guinea. A man in Japan sees small, childlike, ashen white aliens. How can a holy book such as the Christian Bible bring bad luck? One paranormal museum in West Virginia has the answer with an infamous display of the 666 Bible. The people of Hannibal, Missouri, in the late 1800s would be appalled that one of their most prominent residents would be murdered without retribution. Even a $10,000 reward couldn't bring justice. A father takes his son to the ruins of an old, burned-down building, and the boy sees something his father doesn't. And the devil's advocate. It's a phrase that can be traced to the Roman Catholic Church that long had an actual, official office for a person who was employed to be exactly that, an advocate for the devil. And he still works for the church even today. We begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Today, we often say, he's playing the devil's advocate, or he's the devil's advocate. The expression describes someone who argues against a point for the purpose of testing the argument for flaws or weaknesses. Basically, a devil's advocate presents facts that are unfavorable to the candidate. A person who acts like a devil's advocate doesn't necessarily have to have a different opinion. He or she simply presents the concept of arguing against something without being committed to a contrary view. The Devil's Advocate, Latin advocatus diaboli, was actually the official name of the promoter, Fidi, promoter of faith, established in 1587 during the reign of Pope Sixtus V. The first mention of anyone fulfilling the role of an advocatus diaboli was during the preliminary work in preparing for the beatification of Saint Lawrence Justinian 1381-1456 during the canonization process the devil's Advocate employed by the Roman Catholic Church was appointed to argue against the canonization of a candidate. his task was to oversee that no person received the honors of sainthood recklessly and top fast every potential weakness or objection to the saint's canonization was raised and evaluated in order to ensure that only those who were truly worthy would be raised to the dignity of the altars. In reality, the devil's advocate, who had veto right, was expected to seek out and find objections to why an individual should be declared a saint. According to the 1913 Catholic Encyclopedia, his role was to prevent any rash decisions concerning miracles or virtues of the candidates for the honors of the altar. All documents or beatification and canonization processes must be submitted to his examination, and the difficulties and doubts he raises over the virtues and miracles are laid before the congregation and must be satisfactorily answered before any further steps can be taken in the processes. It is his duty to to suggest natural explanations for alleged miracles, and even to bring forward human and selfish motives for deeds that have been accounted heroic virtues. His duty requires him to prepare in writing all possible arguments, even at times seemingly slight, against the raising of anyone to the honors of the altar. The interest and honor of the Church are concerned in preventing anyone from receiving those honors whose death is not proved to have been precious in the sight of the Lord." In 1983, Pope John Paul II reduced the power and changed the role of the office. Many people think this means the devil's advocate position was removed and there is no longer a need for someone to determine the requirement for sainthood. What really happened is that Pope John Paul II did make great changes but the Devil's Advocate is still present within the church. Only now, his name is Promoter of the Faith. It is simply a new title and wording of what has become known as the Devil's Advocate. The Promoter of the Faith doesn't have veto right, and unlike the Devil's Advocate, he doesn't provide a list of objections and complaints against candidates for sainthood. Instead, he provides a report of his findings for evaluation. By removing the rights of the devil's advocate, the canonization process transformed from a trial to a meeting during which church representatives discuss whether a person should become a saint or not. In the summer of 1954, world-renowned social psychologist Muzaffar Sharif toted 22 boys to the foothills of the San Bois Mountains of southeastern Oklahoma. There, in Robbers Cave State Park, he intended to conduct an unprecedented social experiment that involved pitting sparsely supervised 12-year-old boys against each other in the Oklahoma wilderness. This was the Robbers Cave Experiment, and its startling outcome would inspire the harrowing book Lord of the Flies just a year later. Nearly six decades since, experts dubbed the experiment unethical, as it appears to have left lasting mental damage on its subjects. Sharif was born in the Ottoman Empire and won a slot to study psychology at Harvard. He quickly realized that lab research on rats was too confining and he wanted a more complex subject – humans. Fascination with social psychology had, with reason, reached a peak following World War II and so Sharif was able to secure a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. His initial experiment required that 11-year-old boys be sent under the guise of a summer camp to Middle Grove Park in upstate New York. There Sharif would split the boys into teams, pit them against each other for prizes, and then try to reunite them using a series of frustrating and life-threatening events, like a forest fire neither the parents nor the boys obviously knew this was a study. The robber's cave experiment, then, was the second of Sharif's, as his study at Middle Grove in the summer of 1953 had, in his mind, not accomplished the outcome he had hoped for. He was looking for confirmation of his realistic conflict theory, which stated that groups would compete for limited resources even against their friends and allies, but come together in the face of a common disaster regardless of those alliances. The boys at Middle Grove had not cooperated with this theory. They stayed friends despite all hardships, even when Sharif had his staffers steal their clothes, raise their tents, and smash their toys all the while framing other campers. The experiment ended in a drunken brawl between one of the leading social psychologists in the world, Rizofar Sharif, and his research assistants as his experiment had not cooperated with him. Sharif resolved to try again with the robber's cave experiment. Sharif still had money from the grant from his first study, but after his failure felt that his reputation was at risk. This time he would keep the boys separated from the beginning so that they couldn't form the pesky friendships which had thwarted the study at Bindle Grove. The groups were the Rattlers and the Eagles. The two groups were unaware of each other for the first two days. They bonded with their own group through standard camp activities like hiking and swimming. Once the groups seemed to be solidly formed, Sharif and his team instituted the competition phase of the robber's cave experiment. The groups were introduced to each other and a series of rivalrous activities were scheduled. There would be a tug-of-war, baseball, and so forth. Prizes would also be awarded, trophies at stake, and there would be no consolation prizes for the losers. The Rattlers declared they would be the winners and monopolized the baseball field in order to practice. They put up their flag on the field and told the Eagles they had better not touch it. The staffers began to interfere more aggressively in the Robbers Cave experiment. They deliberately caused conflict and once arranged for one group to be late for lunch, So that the other group would eat all the food. At first, the conflict between the boys was verbal with just taunts and name-calling. But under the careful guidance of Sharif and his staff, it soon became physical. The Eagles were supplied with matches and they burned their rival's flag. The Rattlers retaliated, invaded the Eagles' cabin and wrecked it and stole their belongings. The conflict escalated to violence so that the groups had to be separated for two days. Now that the kids hated each other, Sharif decided it was time to vindicate his theory and bring them back together. So, he shut off the drinking water. The Rattlers and Eagles set off to find the water tank which was on a mountain. The only water they had was what was in their canteens. When they arrived at the tank, hot and thirsty, the groups had already begun to merge. The campers found the valve to the tank, but it was covered with rocks, so they joined together and removed the rocks as quickly as possible. This pleased Sharif immensely, as it was in direct agreement with his theory. The groups would fight over limited resources but band together when faced with a common threat. Never mind that the experiment was ethically and procedurally dubious as Sharif had gotten the results that he wanted and his theory, along with the study itself, garnered great publicity. But even professionals who used the study in their textbooks doubted its value. Six decades of development in the field have led modern psychologists to criticize the study. Sharif conducted his experiment under the belief that it was meant to showcase his theory, not either prove or disprove it. In this way, he could very easily, and in many ways did, finagle the outcome he desired. Further, the boys were all middle-class and white, and all shared a Protestant two-parent background. The study in this way was not reflective of real life and was considered limited. There was also the ethical issue surrounding the participants' deception. Neither the children nor their parents knew what they had consented to and the boys were in many cases left unattended or in danger of harm. Regardless of these qualms, the robber's cave experiment has left a legacy, particularly on the participants. Now-grown camper Doug Rissette recalls ironically, "...I'm not traumatized by the experiment, but I don't like lakes, camps, cabins, or tents." up next, witch hunts and trials. They didn't end in Salem. They live on even today in Papua New Guinea. A man in Japan sees small, childlike, ashen-white aliens. And how could a holy book such as the Christian Bible bring bad luck? These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you in part by the audiobook, 20 Commonly Asked Questions About Demons, by Daniel C. Okapara. Demons – what are they? How do they operate, and how does one cast them out? Many years ago, famous Christian apologist C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. It's been decades since he said that. The church is still battling with these equal and opposite extremes. We have people who believe that demons and deliverance teachings and practices are a wishwash emotional razzmatazz used to fleece people into an undue advantage. They believe that once we become new creatures, those old things are passed away that demons have no more power over the believer's life, that all we need to do daily is to renew our minds and live wholly to please the Lord. On the other hand, there are those who practically live, talk, and smell demons. It's all about demons and nothing else. They believe that all of their problems in life are from demons. They spend hours binding and casting demons, running to and fro for one deliverance or the other. This book provides the right balance needed to deal with demons, overcome them, and live a victorious life. 20 Commonly Asked Questions About Demons by Daniel C. Okpara, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marler. Hear a free sample or purchase the title on the audiobook's page at WeirdDarkness.com. Papua New Guinea is one of the few places in the world where literal witch hunts still take place on a regular basis. Witch hunts continue to be practiced, even though engaging in a witch hunt was declared a capital offense by the government in 2013. This leads to the question of why these witch hunts still occur. The answer is probably related to the fact that in Papua New Guinea, witchcraft, sorcery, and malevolent spiritual beings are still relevant, and the effects of industrialization have created more problems that can be blamed on witches. The highlands of Papua New Guinea are very rugged and treacherous. As a result, they are among the most isolated places in the world. Some parts of the region were not explored by Westerners until as late as the 1930s, In contrast, societies of the lowlands of Papua New Guinea have been in contact with the outside world for centuries. One result of this is that the cultural development of the highlands people has been largely independent of the surrounding region. Agriculture, for example, was locally developed in the highlands around 7,000 years ago, rather than being introduced from Southeast Asia. With more time, The highlands may have become another cradle of civilization. Many cultures of the highlands of Papua New Guinea have only recently been exposed to modern scientific explanations for diseases. And it is worth remembering that we live in a mechanistic universe where things, good or bad, sometimes happen just by chance or by nature, rather than by the intentional actions of an intelligent agent, such as a witch. The fact that most witch hunts tend to occur in the highlands demonstrates that belief in witches is still strong in that region. Most of the people of Papua New Guinea traditionally believed that the world was full of natural and ancestral spirits. This belief persists today in many parts of the island nation. An example from one particular culture is belief in a race of sky beings which can be seen in the night as faint lights in the forest. These creatures are said to be man-eaters and accomplices to witches. In most of ancient Papua New Guinea, if someone got sick, died, or even lost livestock to illness or predation, it was commonly suspected to be due to witchcraft or sorcery. The underlying spiritualist worldview behind this has not gone away. It still influences the beliefs and practices of many Papua New Guinean natives both in the highlands and in the lowlands. Because of this, it does not seem too far-fetched to many that Papua New Guinea natives blame a person getting sick on an evil spirit or a witch. This is true regardless of education level and has nothing to do with intelligence. Witch hunts are not only still common in Papua New Guinea, but they appear to be increasing in frequency compared to previous generations. For example, witch hunts are no longer restricted to the rural highlands, but have spread to towns and cities. The response to accused witches is also predictively severe. People suspected of being witches are under threat of being tortured and killed. In an infamous case in 2013, a 20-year-old mother was burned alive. Her daughter was later accused of witchcraft and tortured as well, though she survived and was rescued. The government of Papua New Guinea has officially recognized this as a serious problem and has taken steps to address violence committed against accused witches. For example, the government has recently made it law that killings connected to a witch hunt will be counted as murder. Witches are one explanation for why things go wrong in the world and why there is loss, illness, and death. One possible reason for the increasing frequency of witch hunts in Papua New Guinea is that more health and societal problems have emerged in recent years that can be blamed on witches. Papua New Guinea is currently going through rapid industrialization. Which is leading to problems that previous generations of Papua New Guineans did not face to the same degree. Industrialization and capitalism, for example, bring problems such as unemployment and financial insecurity due to a fluctuating economy. Furthermore, global travel and trade have brought more diseases than previous generations faced, such as the spread of HIV, Modern problems, such as rising real estate prices, are also often blamed on witchcraft alongside illnesses or death. When things go wrong, humans will first look for explanations that make sense and that are most familiar in their cultural context. Beliefs about sorcery and witchcraft are deeply ingrained in the cultures of Papua New Guinea. Many societies in Papua New Guinea, especially the highland societies, have only been recently exposed, historically speaking, to alternative explanations for why things go wrong in the world. It is also true that the problems many of the Papua New Guinean people face have increased in recent years because of industrialization. These two factors are probably part of why witch hunts persist in the region. Humans are slow to give up tradition, and they tend to hold on to their customs and beliefs more strongly when life gets difficult. This includes traditions pertaining to witchcraft. Not long ago in Japan, a man was on his way back to his Airbnb. It was around 11.40 p.m., according to what he remembered. The incident was reported to and documented by the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON. He said, I was walking through the courtyard right before neighborhood entrance when I noticed two four-foot-tall human-looking creatures jumping the wall of the shrine and running away. These small-sized creatures seemed to resemble that of a human child, but they were not human at all. According to what the man had to say, they were too small to be children of any age. However, the shape of their bodies were proportional to that of a human child comparing height. He went on to say that their bodies were white color by appearance. They were far whiter than any Caucasian person would be. Other notable details included these creatures having very skinny legs and arms. Their heads had pointy ears, and their eyes were big black triangles. These short, humanoid aliens very much seemed to be like black-eyed children. However, they may well have been something else entirely. One other thing that separates them from other encounters is the way they moved. According to what this man said, they were able to run with their arms behind them. After a while, they wandered over behind the corner of a wall. When the man approached, he said he made eye contact with one of them. Whatever it was seemed to glance back at him curiously. While at the shrine in Kyoto, the alarm went off but no actual sound was heard. Perhaps whatever these things were somehow could control all the sounds around them. In this one way, they have avoided being detected so easily. Being terrified, the man explained that he didn't want to get too close to them. Not long after, he lost sight of them as they turned past a corner. If these were aliens, then they are from another time and place. They were here for a reason. Perhaps to simply observe us, or they were collecting something as another possibility. Based upon the description, they seem to not be tall whites known as Pleiadians. These blonde Nordic extraterrestrials are thought to roam the Earth already. Pleiadians are believed to be concerned about Earth and its very future one theory is these could be helpers of the Pleiadians or another alien race entirely. This encounter is based upon one man's testimony. It's interesting and perhaps someone else out there has experienced something similar. Another man reported seeing a humanoid creature in a forest outside Kyoto previously as well. Alien visitation seems to be increasing in recent times perhaps something big is ready to happen soon in our world. Not everyone realizes that in Moundsville, West Virginia, there is a paranormal museum that rivals even the most well-known of its kind. Alongside of the Warren's Occult Museum and Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum, Is the Mountain State's very own Archive of the Afterlife. Haunted objects, funerary history, military history, and a host of memorabilia from haunted locations are just a sampling of what you'll find here. There are several exhibits that bring fascination for visitors, but one of the most infamous is the 666 Bible. According to the museum's website, This mysterious artifact was donated by an anonymous urban explorer from Glendale, West Virginia. This person and his friend were visiting the abandoned Morris Memorial Hospital for Crippled Children in Milton, West Virginia. The current Morris Memorial Building was originally built between 1935 and 1936 and treated over 10,000 children, most of who were suffering from polio up until the hospital closed in 1960. With advances in medicine, including a polio vaccine, the great need for such a hospital of this type was no longer needed, and the next year Morris Memorial became a nursing home under the direction of John and Rose Green. It operated as a nursing home until it was completely turned over to the city and used as storage about ten years ago. At first, security wasn't exactly tight at this location, and many amateur ghost hunters urban explorers, and just plain curious folks ventured onto the property. Even the grounds gave off a spooky feel and, peering into windows, one could easily see a mixture of old nursing home furniture and the city's Christmas decorations. Unfortunately, vandalism was a big issue, with some people going as far as to breaking windows and doors and tearing apart the inside of the old hospital. At any given time, access to the hospital was easily obtained through one of those busted windows or doors. With a change in local government came a change in how the property was maintained. No trespassing signs flooded the property, and security cameras were installed. Those caught breaking in were punished, and the vandalism began to curb. Today, there are plans being implemented to turn the former hospital into a high-end hotel and resort facility. All of that is quite fascinating, but what about this Bible? The person who donated the Bible to the museum noted that it was found in an otherwise empty room. The rather large book was opened up to the pages 666 and 667, and the pages were being held in place by a small angel figurine. Even creepier, the top of page 667 appears to have been scorched, As a souvenir, the donor took the Bible home and his friend took the angel. Ghost lore is filled with many tales illustrating the idea that taking an object from a haunted location is never a good idea. Unfortunately, for this urban explorer, he would find that out the hard way. Upon returning home, he put the Bible on his fireplace mantle. Within three days, the family cat died. His mother and pet dog became gravely ill. He heard his name being whispered only to find no living person anywhere within earshot. Things reached a spooky crescendo when three full-bodied shadow people were observed in the backyard. Presumably, the streak of bad luck and paranormal activity ended when the Bible was donated to the museum. And if you are brave enough, you can visit the seemingly cursed holy book for yourself. The museum, which has recently expanded, can be found in Moundsville Sanford Community Center, just a short drive from the West Virginia State Penitentiary at Moundsville. The museum is a great deal at $3 per person or $5 per couple, and you could spend hours browsing just the collection itself. But if you're a little more eager, there are investigation opportunities and paranormal conventions and events held throughout the year. Now, I wonder if anything similar ever happened with that angel figurine. When Weird Darkness returns, the people of Hannibal, Missouri in the late 1800s would be appalled that one of their most prominent residents could be murdered without retribution even after posting a $10,000 reward. And a father takes his son to the ruins of an old, burned-down building, and the boy sees something his father doesn't. These stories are up next. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Kitty sent me an email saying, "...My husband works out of state the majority of the time, and when he left he wanted to take his MyPillow with him. That's how much he loves his." right now you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com. Promo code WEIRD. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Doran's Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362, 847 1362 Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Doran's Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. Amos and Fanny Stillwell returned home from a party at a neighbor's house on December 29, 1889. It was a small gathering of Hannibal, Missouri's high society, and the Stillwells were among the wealthiest and most prominent guests. Mr. Stillwell grew tired at around 11.30, the couple left the party and took the short walk back to their house. They had left their three young children in the care of two servant girls. Mrs. Stilwell dismissed the servants and took the children upstairs with her. The Stillwells slept in separate beds, and that night Mrs. Stilwell shared her bed with the children. Another daughter, 14-year-old Molly, normally slept in the room next to her parents, but that night she was away visiting friends. Around 2 a.m., Mrs. Stilwell was awakened by some disturbance in the room and heard her husband say, Fanny, is that you? Fanny, is that you? She could see a man standing with his back to her, and a moment later she heard a whirring sound as if something was thrown violently through the air. Then she heard someone running down the stairs. She rushed to her husband's bed and found that he had been murdered he had a terrible gash in his head, and he was lying in a pool of blood. From this point on, Mrs. Stilwell's memory of events became confused. She had taken the screaming children back to the servants and run outside in her nightgown to the home of her neighbors, the Leagues. Mr. League heard her story and hurriedly summoned doctors Hearn, Allen, and Gleason, who lived nearby. Back in the bedroom, Mrs. Stilwell had fainted and remained unconscious as the doctors examined her husband's body. He had been struck with an ax, leaving a wound so deep that it severed both his jugular vein and his corroded artery. Realizing that nothing could be done for Mr. Stilwell, Dr. Hearn turned his attention to Mrs. Stillwell. He was her advising physician and was able to bring her back to consciousness. The police investigated the crime scene, and determined that the killer ran through the back door of the house, through the yard, and into an alley. As he ran, he had dropped a $5 bill, which was found in the alley. About 20 feet further, they found four more $5 bills and, a little further on, the empty pocketbook. The murder weapon, an old double-edged axe, was also found in the alley. The police believed that the intruder's original intent was burglary, but he had awakened Mr. Stilwell and killed him to escape unidentified. The murder of a prominent citizen caused great excitement in Hannibal, and everyone was anxious to get the killer behind bars. The Pinkerton Detective Agency was called in to assist the police, and Richard Stilwell, Amos's son from his first marriage, offered a $1,000 reward for the capture of the killer, which added amateur detectives to the case. The family, including Richard Stilwell, firmly believed that the killer was a burglar interrupted while robbing the house. But many in Hannibal thought Amos was killed by someone closer to home. 65-year-old Amos Stilwell had been the owner of a pork-packing business and was one of the wealthiest men in Hannibal. After the death of his first wife more than 20 years earlier, he met Fanny Anderson on a visit to relatives in Indiana. Though she was still in her teens, Amos fell madly in love with Fanny and proposed marriage. Fanny did not get along with her stepmother and had been contemplating entering a convent. She decided that being the wife of a rich widower was preferable to a life in the church, and she accepted his offer. The Stillwells appeared to have a happy marriage, but Amos was growing old and Fanny, 30 years younger, was still in her prime. Amos could be a hard man to live with. He managed the household as he did his business and abhorred waste and needless expense. He was a vegetarian and a health enthusiast and forced Fanny to sleep in a heavy cotton nightgown, believing the modern lacy styles to be unhealthy. Though Amos did not believe in physicians, Fanny often consulted Dr. Joseph C. Hearn, who lived just around the block from the Stillwells, so often, in fact, that many believed they were having an affair. After the murder, the predominant belief outside of official circles was that Dr. Hearn was involved in the killing. In spite of public opinion, Richard Stilwell, with his money and influence, was driving the investigation, and he held to the burglar theory. Detectives focused on the African-American community, and the first arrests in the case, two weeks after the murder, were a black man named George Gibson and his mistress, Alice Ward. Police would not say what evidence they had, but the couple was rigidly examined by two Pinkerton men. On January 28, a black man named George Dixon and his white mistress were arrested by Pinkertons for unlawful cohabitation. He was questioned about the murder because he was seen in the city that night with an unusually large amount of money. There was no evidence to hold any of these suspects, and they were soon released. With a lack of useful clues to follow, the Pinkertons retired from the investigation and the case turned cold. Then, the following December, almost a year to the day from the murder, Fanny Stillwell and Dr. Joseph C. Hearn were married. Interest in the case was renewed and rumors of Dr. Hearn's involvement resurfaced. John E. Stillwell, a nephew of the murdered man, tried to force a thorough investigation by the grand jury, which included Dr. Hearn, but the prosecuting attorney refused to pursue any theory but robbery. The grand jury did not return any indictments, and the widow, now called Fanny Hearn, forced the retirement of John Stilwell from the pork-packing company. Richard Stilwell raised the reward to $10,000. And Over the next four years, a few arrests briefly seemed promising, but there was no significant progress in the case. The grand jury met at least five more times and, after considering the evidence handed down, no indictments. The Hearns left Hannibal and moved to San Diego, California, where Dr. Hearn opened up a medical practice. Then, in August 1894, Fanny Hearn filed for divorce Charging cruelty and failure to provide. The decision had been mutual, and Dr. Hearn did not contest the charge, though privately said the cause was incompatibility of temperament. After the divorce, Fanny returned to her previously married name of Stillwell. News of the divorce, even as far away as California, raised memories of the Stillwell murder. An article in the San Francisco Chronicle. Connecting Dr. Hearn to the murder angered the doctor so much that he sued the paper for a libel, asking for $200,000 in damages. In July 1895, Dr. Hearn traveled back to Hannibal, along with his attorneys and attorneys for the Chronicle, to take depositions. It was not a good time for Dr. Hearn to return to Hannibal. Richard Stilwell had finally abandoned the burglar theory And had come to accept what the rest of the town had been saying since the beginning. His father was murdered by Dr. Hearn and Fanny. He had gathered evidence on his own and canceled the reward so as not to influence the trial when he took the case to court. Then he volunteered to be deposed in support of the San Francisco Chronicle. Richard Stilwell testified as to why he had changed his mind. He said that he had recently learned from several sources that Dr. Hearn and Fanny had been in love before the murder and had engaged in criminal intimacy. He learned that Dr. Hearn did not think Amos Stillwell was a fit companion for Fanny and he planned to use his influence over her to bring about a divorce. Hearn was heard to say he could hire a man to slug Amos for $2.50. One of Richard's sources, Mrs. C.P. Haywood, said Hearn had told her that he was at the Stillwell house when Amos was away in St. Louis. Amos returned unexpectedly, and when he entered the house, Hearn had been naked and did not have time to dress. Hearn hid in the shadows, and Amos passed him in the hall without seeing him. Hearn told Mrs. Haywood that if he'd been caught, he would have shot Amos. Everyone would think it was a burglar. No one ever suspects doctors or ministers. few days later, the grand jury reconvened, and this time they heard testimony from all of the witnesses who had testified for the San Francisco Chronicle, including Richard Sitwell, who had obtained a deposition from his source, Mrs. C.P. Haywood. There were other bits of incarnating evidence the jury had not heard before. Molly Stilwell had never slept away from home before the night of the murder. Witnesses who saw the body that night believed it had been moved before they arrived. Several witnesses saw Fanny in a fancy modern nightgown after the murder. Jim Abbey, former detective for Missouri Pacific Railroad, found a plain cotton nightgown with bloodstains on the sleeves in an outhouse vault on the Stilwell property. The grand jury indicted both Dr. Hearn and Fanny Stilwell for first-degree murder. They were arrested and held for trial. The defendants were to be tried separately. Dr. Hearn's trial began in Bowling Green, Missouri on December 9, 1895. The people of Hannibal would finally have the justice they had craved for for seven long years. But after hearing two weeks of evidence, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. There was not enough hard evidence to tie Dr. Hearn to the murder. Dr. Hearn was immediately released from custody. Fanny Stillwell was released on $5,000 bail, but Hearn's verdict had effectively cleared her as well, and she would never be tried for the murder. The trial had resolved little. Dr. Hearn and Fanny Stilwell would remain the prime suspects in popular opinion. The people of Hannibal would remain appalled that one of their most prominent residents could be murdered without retribution. Dr. Hearn continued his suit against the San Francisco Chronicle, Seven months and two trials later, he won his case, and was awarded $10,000 in damages. I'm not a guy that is quick to blame every weird experience on the paranormal, and I like to think I could debunk many paranormal experiences. My personal story goes back 20-plus years to a time when I had a young family. We didn't have a lot of money, but we did own a small house in a small city in Massachusetts. It wasn't big, but it was ours, and we tried to fix it up how we could. I'd been wanting to build a little brick walk that would lead to my backyard. I didn't really have the money to go buy bricks, so I decided to go to the site where the remnants of an old factory that had burned down to the ground 40 years earlier there were old bricks strewn all around from the walls that had collapsed during the fire. The word around town was the grounds at the old factory had become so contaminated with chemicals that they had worked with during its heyday, it would have been very costly to remediate the ground, so it was left undisturbed for years. My son, who was around four years old at the time, asked to go with me to get the bricks. I said, you can come, but stay in the car because there's a lot of glass and nails all around and I don't want you to get hurt, so I want you to stay in the car while I get the bricks. We drove to the factory and into an old gravel driveway. I must admit, even in the light of day, on a Saturday morning, it had a creepy feel to the place. It was the first time I'd been there, other than driving past this place every day. I pulled over to an area where I thought I'd have the least chance of getting a flat tire. I told my son to sit tight and I'd be back in a few minutes. I wasn't going far and was only 75 feet from the car, so I was always within earshot if he needed me. It seemed as soon as I got out of the car, I had this uncomfortable feeling, like I'm not supposed to be here. So I walked my way over to some bricks on the ground and start collecting. Many were broken and there weren't as many full bricks as I had hoped, but picked what I could. As I'm collecting bricks, I'm becoming more and more uncomfortable being there. There are no houses in the area, but I kept looking around to see if anyone was there. But I see no one. It had finally gotten to the point where I'd become so uncomfortable, I decided to load the truck with the bricks I'd collected and would make another trip some other time. After loading the bricks in the car, I shut the trunk, and the heavy load made the car squat in the back and I hoped I wouldn't bottom out the dirt drive on the way out. As I got into the car, my son turns to me and asks, what did that man want? I looked at him and said, what man, being we were completely alone? The man that was talking to you, the man with the big belly, he replied. I looked at him completely bewildered the man that was just talking to you, he said in a determined way. I asked if he could see him now. He said he wasn't there anymore. As I'm driving out, I kept looking in my rearview mirror and trying to scan the area for this man with the big, big belly. I was completely creeped out at this point and just wanted to leave that place. The 30-foot driveway felt like it was a mile long. I told my son I didn't see the man and maybe he told me that I was trespassing on private property, which I was. When I got home, I told my wife the very creepy story our son just told me. She just looked at me, and the story creeped her out as well. I later researched the factory and the fire that brought it down, but there were no deaths involved. The site was left undisturbed for 10 or more years before the city came in and cleaned up the site and Built a brand-new Department of Public Works facility. During those last ten years, before the city cleared out all the debris, I never returned. I had no desire to go back and try to see the man with the big, big belly. To this day, I am absolutely certain we were alone out there that morning, at least in the physical form. My son's persistence and reaction about the man talking to me left me unable to explain the experience, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I have heard, and believe, that a child's eyes are more open to spiritual things and tend to grow out of this stage as they get older. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com, and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. All patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness on weekdays, plus two exclusive bonus episodes on the weekends. And if you sign up at only $10 per month, you also get more exclusive content, such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. I'm currently narrating Murderous Minds Volume 2 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker. You can get more info on how to become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. Also, at WeirdDarkness.com you can get the free mobile app, find Weird Darkness on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group read creepy stories, or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, any way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at darren at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment and leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Hell if I know left a review in Apple Podcasts saying, «Amazing job! Love your podcast, it's literally the only nonfiction horror podcast I listen to. Your content is very interesting and educational as well, and to all the people that complain, it just shows how our society has become ungrateful. You put this out for free and they complain about commercials and repeat stories? Doesn't bother me one bit great job, keep it up. Makes my work days go by fast." And Then I got an interesting email from Barry. He said, "...Hi Darren, I'm from Ayrshire in Scotland. I like to start off with saying that I love the show and look forward to my phone informing me that there's a new episode available. It's just my cup of tea. Always had a love of the spooky. I also wanted to give you a few tips on British pronunciation of place names, I've noticed a few strange pronunciations, but I totally understand, as you're not from this side of the pond. Firstly, Glasgow, where I work, is pronounced Glasgow. Edinburgh, and in fact anywhere with the berg ending is said bruh, as in uh in umbrella, so Edinburgh. My favorite was the Outer Hebrides, which we say Hebrides. I don't write these things to annoy you, but to edify. I can almost see your British listeners squirming as you butcher the name of their hometown. Kind of funny, too. Anyway, thanks for making my time at the office and my bus journey home a lot more bearable with your wonderful podcast. All the best. Signed, Barry." Yeah, Barry, uh, I do have a terrible ear for foreign pronunciations. You think that's bad? You should hear me butcher proper names in French. I actually avoid those stories now because I know I sound like an idiot. But anyway, thank you very much for the feedback. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Robber's Cave Experiment was written by Tig Spearman. Papua New Guinea Witchcraft was written by Caleb Strom. The Devil's Advocate was written by Ellen Lloyd. Childlike Aliens was posted at Freaklore.com. The 666 Bible was written by Teresa HPIR. The Stillwell Murder was written by Robert Wilhelm. And The Old Factory Visit was written by Mike and posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Happiness depends upon ourselves. Maybe it's not about the happy ending. Maybe it's about the story. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.